Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Angus Anderson. I'm Mike Saul. I'm Neil Prendergast. And today's interview is with Peter Glick. He's the co-founder of the Pacific Institute, a think tank dedicated to international and domestic water policy. He's won a MacArthur Genius Fellowship and has been deeply involved in crafting water policy with the United Nations. In other words, Peter knows a lot about water. The water crisis is, unfortunately, a lot of different things. It's hard to pin it down, in part because water is a global resource, of course, but it's also a local resource. Uh, Water's connected to the requirement to grow food for the world's population. It's connected to our natural ecosystems. It's part of the climate system and the hydrologic cycle. It's part of our industrial system. So the water crisis is different things to different people in different places. And when people ask me, well, if there's a water crisis, really, is what kind of a water crisis is there? If there's anything that, in my opinion, defines the water crisis, it's that it's now the 21st century, and we have failed to provide safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet. There are billion people or so without access to safe drinking water. There are two and a half billion people without access to sanitation services, something that that I and, and my community basically take for granted. That's a gross failure. It's a, it's a crisis. It leads to bad things. It leads to water-related diseases and cholera and dysentery and typhoid and probably two million deaths a year, unnecessary preventable deaths from water-related diseases. And there are many other aspects of the world's water crisis. That one is the one that bothers me the most, I guess. We, we've been lucky in the United States in the sense that we industrialized, started industrializing in the 1800s. The United States was where some of the greatest advances in water and sanitation occurred almost exactly 100 years ago, we started building the sophisticated water filtration, water chlorination, water treatment systems that in the United States eliminated those water-related diseases that are still rampant in much of the rest of the world. Cholera, typhoid, dysentery, those were common diseases in the United States in the 1800s and the even in the early 1900s. And we've now vanquished them, mostly. We've gotten rid of them precisely because we invested in innovative technology and modern water systems to provide safe water and sanitation. Now, I I can't not mention the fact that even today in the United States, there are populations without access to safe drinking water and adequate sanitation services. There are people, especially in rural America, who do not have safe drinking water. And they either don't know it or, or they do know it and we've not addressed the problem. So it's not a uniquely developing country problem. We have, even in the United States, grow, serious and growing water scarcity challenges. We have contamination problems with chemicals that we have not adequately regulated here in the United States. We have conflicts between states in the United States about who gets to use what water to do what. We have evidence that climate change is already influencing water demand, affecting water availability, changing extreme events. There are a whole suite of water-related problems here unrelated to these basic human need challenges that 
that are pressing in other parts of the world. Do you think that we are taking adequate steps to remedy any of these problems? Well, yes and no. In general, no. I think for too long we've taken water for granted. That we turn on the tap and almost everywhere in the United States, incredibly high quality potable water at an incredibly low price comes out. And that's the way it's been for a long time. It's the cheapest service that we have. It's cheaper than our cell phones. It's cheaper than our cable TV. It's cheaper than our internet connection. It's cheaper than our energy bill. Of all the utilities, almost everywhere, water's the cheapest. As a result, we've often ignored water and water-related problems. But I do think that's changing. And people care enormously about water when there are problems. And I think there are remarkably innovative things that are going on in some places. If there's a, a type of thought that sort of characterizes our current approach to water, what would you say that is? Well, it's certainly fragmented and, for the most part, uninformed. We don't have a national water policy, or we do by default, but not by intent. There's also just a general lack of understanding about where our water comes from and what we do with it and what's required to protect the natural ecosystems and what the value of natural ecosystems are. I mean, there's, a lot, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ignorance about the nature of our water problems. We live in a market society, and that is a, a logic that underlies a lot of how we approach the world. Like your cell phone bill, you expect to be part of the market. Water, of course, you've got 19th century law, you've got much older common law traditions, but you've also got a trend towards thinking of it as a market commodity, correct? We do live in a, a market-dominated, capitalistic kind of economy. And water doesn't fit in well with that framework and that structure. The, the problem with water and, and markets also reflects in part a contradiction between the idea of water as a human right and water as, a, as an economic good. Water is both of those things. After a very, very long multi-decade discussion and debate at the United Nations, for example, access to water and sanitation were finally declared a formal human right at the international legal level in 2010. But water is also an economic good. We, we pay for water, often not enough, but we pay for water or for water services. We have to figure out a way to fund the infrastructure to provide the that safe water out of our taps and to take away magically the, the wastewater when we're done with it. We price water in some places and we don't in other places. We, we think about markets for water, but water's hard to move from one place to another. The, the idea of water as a market good, as an economic good, is, is a challenge. It's, I think it's an important tool in solutions, but it can't be the only one because it's not like a traditional good. You think this is something where we can arrive at, at better solutions for dealing with water and, and solving our water-related problems. Can we arrive at that preemptively through conversation? Or is that something that we have to have some sort of crisis to galvanize? Well, we've never been good at solving our problems in any sphere before a crisis occurs. I, I just, I don't know whether that's human nature or the nature of our institutions or the nature of our governance structures, but it's a rare problem that is seen and adequately addressed in advance. There's a great quote, which I'm going to mangle, from East of Eden. 
in which Steinbeck says, in the wet years, they forgot about the dry years, and in the dry years, they forgot about the wet years, and it was always that way, and it always will be. And that's the truth. In the dry years, we get upset and we get active and we get innovative about dealing with water and then it rains and we have a, a, a wet year or a series of wet years and the crisis diminishes. So it's two steps forward, two steps back. Sometimes it's two steps forward, three steps back. I'm not sanguine about the idea that we will adequately address our water problems before they become seriously problematic. When we hit that point, when there is tension between the states that's unbearable, say agricultural producers are getting squeezed by cities, how do you think we will deal with those problems? Will we come up with innovative solutions? Or do you think that this could lead to some sort of real meltdown in how we address problems? I'm curious your take on that in the water realm, but really that's kind of a human nature question. Yes, is the answer to that. (laughs) We're, We're going to do both of those things. We will see growing competition, for example, between agricultural water use and urban water use, which is sort of the big split in the, on the water use side, and serious political dislocation as a result of that. But I also believe that we will see smart, innovative, and are already seeing smart and innovative and thoughtful solutions put forward to reduce the problems that we see. Part of the answer, I guess, is dependent on who's preparing for these things and how we're preparing and uh, what the costs of implementing solutions are versus the perceived costs of doing nothing. And if there is a good perception that, look, there's smart things that we can do now that might benefit everybody and that will reduce the risk of serious dislocation later, then, may, then maybe the pressure to do those smart things will overwhelm the inertia of doing nothing, which we see too often. And I want to connect this into an economics conversation. I mean, do you think that if we hit that point with water, where push comes to shove and we have to really start making hard decisions, do you think that we can make the right ones with the status quo economic thinking? It's not just an economic question. Part of the problem around water is related to the legal structures and the institutions we put in place, and in particular, the water rights situation. So this gets back to this question about economics and and markets. We can't solve the water problem purely with economics and markets because we've set up a non-economic, non-market system, a legal system that allocates water, especially in the Western United States, to first-in-right, first-in-time users. Uh, That's the legal prior appropriations doctrine. And so it almost doesn't matter for many users what the price of water is. What matters is who has the right, the legal right, to use a certain allocation. Changing that structure, the water rights structure, is a very, very difficult thing. And one of the reasons why I think we, we are heading, at least in some parts of the Western United States, for political disruptions over water is because it's not as simple as just putting a price on water. It's not as simple as just saying, all right, you know, the, the real solution is let's just have some markets. We'll, we can bid for water and whoever pays more can put it to a higher valued use and the economy will benefit. And that's not the way it's going to work. That's going to lead to difficult political debates. That's interesting. So it's almost more of a political issue just in terms of 
ossified law than it is a market issue. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I'm a scientist by training, but I believe very strongly in pricing and markets for proper allocation of resources. But there is this conflict between water as a human right and water as an economic good, and water is both. And in the West, we don't always allocate water under market systems. In fact, we rarely allocate water under market systems. And so my economist friends who say intellectually, let's just put a price on water, are academically right but politically naive because that's not the way the system is set up. And uh, that alone won't be enough. Given the current distribution of power surrounding water and water rights, do you think there's any way to democratically unlock that? I mean, you have these people who've got water rights going back, you know, 100 years or more, perhaps agricultural areas that are legitimately producing useful goods, right, that are being consumed elsewhere. So to drive them out of it, that seems like that would be a really, not only politically difficult, but economically problematic, because in the end, you're just shifting resources, you know, maybe you're allowing your city to grow, but you're cutting off some of the food supply that would have gone into it. You know, it seems like there are multiple aspects that would make that legal adjustment very difficult. Well, first of all, there's a misconception here, which is that no one is proposing or foreseeing taking water away completely from agriculture. Oh, no, I wasn't suggesting that. And so really the question could be reframed in the following way. Is there a way to maintain a healthy, productive agricultural system in the United States that uses less water and frees up some water for industrial goods, for growing urban demands, for natural ecosystems, for restoring the health of our rivers. And if you reframe it that way, I think the answer is very clearly yes. And I think that's the right way to go moving forward. So to be talking more about efficiency than about reallocation. And much of, much of the work that we do at the Pacific Institute is focused on efficiency, defined as doing what we want with less water, not deprivation, not taking water away from one, one user and giving it to another, but doing what we want with less water. I think that's fundamental. I think that's key. I, I do think that there will have to be a discussion about water rights and allocation systems but I don't think the kinds of changes that we need in those systems are draconian. I think they're incremental and possible. But having the conversation is, is politically difficult just because of the sensitivity of the different communities to water rights and law and historical custom and, mm -hmm. and, and so on. And it also seems like there's, there's a facet of that where because of our history, we end up with, say, alfalfa producers in the Colorado River Basin, you know, growing a crop that is just not worth much and could be grown elsewhere, right? And so even if we achieve efficiency there and we don't want to deal with the political fallout of a draconian solution, obviously it would be much more efficient to grow that somewhere east of the Mississippi. Do you think efficiency in the current system is enough to solve the problems or will we eventually need to face something a little more draconian, like say, put that alfalfa out east? Well, there's enormous potential for improving efficiency. 
And we've studied, for example, if you have the same crop mix as today, but change irrigation methods and use sophisticated soil moisture sensors and distribution systems and regulated deficit irrigation, which is a technique for certain kinds of crops, that you can grow the same crop, produce more revenue because yields go up per unit water and decrease water use. Whether or not in the long run that's enough or whether you also have to begin to think about different crop types, taking some land out of production. Those are more difficult questions politically. But even there, given the right signals and the right institutions and the right pricing structures, farmers change what they do over time. Just looking at California, there's been a remarkable shift in what we grow over the last 30 years. We grow a lot less of the four big water-intensive crops, that is rice, cotton, alfalfa, and irrigated pasture, and much more of the higher-valued fruits and nuts and vegetable crops that use less water, produce more revenue. So there hasn't been an intentional effort to do that. There hasn't been a state policy to do that. But water scarcity, changes in markets for food, changes in pricing of food and both and water, all of those things have led farmers over time to change what they do and where they do it. And if that was something we wanted to encourage, I think we could, we could see it happen even faster. And that gives me a little bit of hope that even with our hidebound institutions, even with the century-old water rights laws, there's enormous opportunity to change the way we manage and deal with our water. Do we run into the Jevons paradox here where savings and efficiency just generate more use of water? I hate the Jevons paradox. <laughs> I, I think the Jevons paradox is fallacious. It, it's, a, it's a paradox with a kernel of truth and a, a bigger misunderstanding. In the context of water, you could certainly have an example, and I could point you to examples, where a farmer improves efficiency, cuts their water demand, and simply takes that water and does something else with it. They grow food on land they hadn't brought into production. And does that fall under the Jevons paradox? I would say no. I think that's a, I think that's a misrepresentation of it. Because in fact, one could argue what that is, is the farmer using the same amount of water to grow more food. So from a productivity point of view, that's still a great improvement. You get more food per unit water. You get more money to the farmer per unit water. That's not the Jevons paradox. That's productivity. And that's a good thing. Now, from a societal point of view, we might want that farmer not to reuse that water on ag land, but to leave it in the river for ecosystem purposes or to transfer it to an urban use. But that's a policy decision, and it's not in any way an argument that efficiency doesn't work, that efficiency is a bad idea. I, I just think that's... And I think the Jevons paradox has been misused in the energy sector as well. How about applied to population? So say we're looking at suburban development and say Phoenix switches over to zero escaped lawns. Maybe the city council goes, well, that's an efficiency savings. Now we can zone X many more areas for subdivisions. So it's not the efficiency in this case is just putting more people in Phoenix, which may not be a productivity in the gain in the same way that had adding another crop from your savings is. It, I'm sorry, but it is a productivity gain in certain people's minds in the sense, oh, totally in, is, in the yes. sense of 
you can provide for more people without increasing your demand on natural resources. I think that's a good thing. Now, is it a good thing that populations are moving to these arid regions where we just don't have the water for them? That's that's a planning question. It's a population question. It's a it's an urban development question, and it's one that we're not adequately a- asking or answering. So, is that an appropriate use of saved water? No, not necessarily. But that's a decision not for a water manager to make, but for society to make, and for urban planners to make, and for for cities to make. You know, I don't know why people move to hot, dry places. Well, if I lived in Minneapolis, probably I, I would know. <laughs> but but you you can't encourage inefficient use of water in order to try to discourage people from moving to a place. I just think that's got it backwards. I think you use your natural resources as efficiently as possible. And the broader questions about who ought to live where and what we ought to do with our natural resources have to be addressed. Those questions have to be addressed directly. We've been talking about productivity and efficiency, and I kind of want to get into what that's for. You know, this is a project about questioning status quo, and a lot of people talk about progress and productivity and efficiency in ways that are often ill-defined and typically just seem to equate to more. More people, more stuff. I've had other people in this project who said, well, that doesn't really address any quality of life things. Actually, you don't need any of those things for a quality life. Efficiency should be working towards simpler lives and less stuff. And for them, that's that's a goal that could be more efficiently met. So in this case, as we talk about progress and productivity and efficiency, what are we working towards here? What's good in this case? Well, there are a lot of issues there. One is, at the simplest level, efficiency and productivity for me is doing what we want with fewer impacts on our resources. Using less water, using less energy, having less of an impact on natural ecosystems. The quality of life that we have or want and the resources necessary to provide that quality of life are two separate questions. Whatever quality of life we choose to have, the question of efficiency and productivity means satisfying that quality of life with as little impact as possible. And in that sense, when I talk about water use efficiency and water productivity, I mean using less water to do what we want. Now, what do we want? That's a completely different question and without a doubt ought to be addressed both individually in terms of our choices as consumers, but also collectively as societies and our impact on the planet. Part of the broad problem of environmental and sustainability issues is what I would describe as the disease of growth, the assumption that we have to grow, grow, grow in order to have a healthy economy and improving quality of life. I think that might have been true in a narrow definition in the past, but now I think it's much more problematic than beneficial. Uh, The question of population dynamics, the question of population growth, the question of demanding that our GNP grow two or three or 4% a year, I think those are bad things now, not good things. And integrating that into a conversation is hard to do because it gets at the fundamentals of what most economists and politicians have assumed to be correct forever, but that I think is no longer correct. Right. And I want to get a little more into that in a second, but I want to connect that up with efficiency very quickly. If we continue to pursue efficiency, do we allow ourselves to carry 
an enormous population on a frail technological infrastructure and that by building higher and higher, we're essentially making the risks higher should something fall apart. Well, you know, that's certainly a risk. And one could argue that we're already there. If our technological society broke down in any fundamental way, most of us are already way beyond any ability to live without the fundamental supports that our urban structures and our communication structures and our food delivery systems and our water delivery systems provide. And so if one was a catastrophist and was convinced that catastrophe to society was coming, one would want to be as invulnerable to those kinds of disruptions as possible. And to some degree, that's what survivalists are doing. But if that happens, then most of us are screwed anyway. And I don't think that's an argument for not improving technology and not improving efficiency. So, I mean, here's a mundane example. Think of the lowly toilet. Now, we love our toilets. They magically whisk away our wastes, and we don't have to think about them. In any urban concentration, you're dependent on a water system that delivers water to that toilet, and you're dependent on a wastewater treatment system that collects it and treats it and then gets rid of the, deals with the waste. But from a purely personal perspective, the service that you get out of a toilet is the same whether your toilet uses six gallons every time it flushes or is an efficient 1.3 dual flush toilet. That's a technological shift, but in fact, our old toilets used six gallons every time we flushed them, and the new modern ones that are actually better performing than the old ones use 1.3 gallons every time you flush them. And that's a 70 or 80% reduction in water demand. That's an improvement in efficiency. The service that's provided is the same. There's no argument against it. It's an improvement without a change in our vulnerability. I would argue it reduces our vulnerability to disruption. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Technology, you have to take it as an enterprise. Is the technology that gives us that greater efficiency toilet also going to create something that causes us to use far more water elsewhere? Can you break those things apart? Well, sometimes I'm in the middle. I'm a huge fan of innovative technology, and I'm a, I have fears like anybody else that our industrialized society that has created many of the benefits that we love also produces a lot of ills that we either don't see when, when we're creating them or have ignored for too long. But it doesn't have to be one or the other. The trick is develop the technologies that are going to help us and avoid the technological problems that come with ill-thought-out, ill-planned development. And that seems to get back to what we were kind of moving into earlier, which was the growth paradigm. Yeah, in part. Uh, um, so, I mean, are, are the ills of the world a function of the number of people on the planet or the technologies and institutions and in industries that we've developed to support the number of people on the planet or some combination? And I rebel against any narrow definition of the problem. Some people say, well, it's population and if only those developing countries would cut their population, then there would be a lot less pressure on resources. And people in developing countries say, oh, fine, but it's your consumption patterns in the richer part of the world that are the problem because you use two or four, 10 or 100 times the resources per person that we do. And if everybody just lived like us, the pressures on the planet would be lower. You know, it's all of those things. 
anyone who narrows it down to one piece of that and says it's only the technology or it's only the population or it's only the consumption level isn't taking a broad view. And I think in the end, the solutions are all of the above. We have to deal with the population problem. We have to. We have to deal with better technology because current technology is inefficient and sometimes harmful. We have to deal with our individual consumption levels and the choices we make as consumers. I think an integrated approach is the only way to solve these problems. And I think I was suggesting the connection back to growth because it seems like if you take growth as the umbrella category, you can look at both population and technology. And both of them, there's a need for some kind of growth or progress or a sense of forward momentum. That's not explicitly stated in a lot of cases, but that may be an underlying theme that unifies how both of them are, are moving at the moment. All right, but let, let me throw in another perspective on this puzzle because I do think we're living in a weird, unusual time in history. I, I do a blog at National Geographic Science Blogs, and I, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago that said the most important day of the 21st century is going to be the day when the population of the planet is smaller than it was the day before. And I don't think I'm going to live to see it, but I think my children will live to see it. The world's not going to radically change that day from a human misery perspective or the nature of our problems perspective, but it's going to change philosophically. It, it's going to make people think differently than we've ever thought in human history about this concept of growth. And I think it's a good thing. If we can get to that point, <laughs> if society survives the next several decades, we get the opportunity at that point to start to think about a truly sustainable society. I talked to the head of the Population Connection, and uh, he was talking about that too, and he has faith that it will level off. For him, a lot of that connects to, well, we need to keep fighting the battle for education, for women having control over their own bodies. That's a political question. And he's convinced that if we can make those steps, people will make the choices to not be above the replacement rate. And what I wanted to ask him, actually, I did ask him, was what about the cultural context? We have to deal with a lot of places where women don't have control over their lives. And for cultural reasons, it may be really hard for us to convince anyone there that they should. And we also see that being contested here. So much of this seems like it's a cultural conversation where in the ideal setting, people might make those choices to gradually start leveling the population off. But do you think that's going to happen? I think it's inevitable. Absolutely inevitable. And I'm not a population dynamics expert, but even in parts of the world where culturally the conversations about birth control and the conversations about women, women's rights and education have been difficult, even in those regions, population growth is slowing. And actually, to tie it back to water briefly, there is a population water connection, and that is that it turns out when you provide safe water and sanitation in rural areas in Africa, for example, and in schools, girls stay in school longer because they don't have to walk one or two or five kilometers to carry often contaminated water back for the family, which takes hours of their time and is back-breaking horrible labor. They stay in school longer. 
When they stay in school longer, they get better educated. When they get better educated, they have smaller families. So solve the water problem and you contribute to one of the factors that improves the quality of life overall and especially for women. And that feeds back to the population dynamics question. When you say it's inevitable that the population will will decline, it seems like you feel that physical reality is ultimately going to trump these sort of irrational assumptions about how we should live. Like in a way, the fact that there are just too many people has to make that say religious or cultural tradition change? It's No, it's not just physical limitations. So it's something else. It's cultural and it's social and it's economic. Large family size is not purely a result of a religious or social or cultural demand. It's been an economic necessity. It's been a result of health issues and the fact that you have 10 children and nine of them die from water-related diseases or other diseases. We're beginning to address at the medical level some of those issues, and family size is dropping because of that. So I just think the trend toward slowing of the increase in population and ultimately a leveling off, we've seen that for 100 years now, and I don't think there's any plausible argument that can be made that religious demands or social or cultural demands is going to turn that around. One of the interesting ideas that branches off from that is, you know, our current economy is predicated on growth. I mean, that's consumables, but also a lot of the reason consumer demand rises is because there are more people. And so if you have a declining workforce, how does that change the bigger economic picture? You know, in a way, does achieving environmental sustainability force us to rethink the economic system or force it to collapse in some way? Well, when I refer to the dramatic change that I think is going to happen psychologically when population finally starts to decline, that's what it's about. It's how do we transfer our economic ideas, our institutional ideas, our cultural ideas from a growth paradigm to the opposite of that, to a shrinking paradigm. There are going to be fundamental difficulties in dealing with aging populations. We already see this happening in places like Italy and Japan, parts of Eastern Europe, where an older and older population is supported by a smaller and smaller number of young people. That's a very difficult question. There are going to be some problems in changing that paradigm, the economic paradigm, but we're going to have to figure that one out. The advantage from an environmental point of view and from a resource point of view is that if we're able to support a population of nine or nine and a half billion with the resources we have now, it's going to be easier and easier ecologically to support a population of eight and then seven and then six billion people and whatever we end up leveling off at. That that raises the broad concept of what is a sustainable planet really look like? What is a sustainable population? What's an appropriate standard of living? What's an appropriate level of technology versus non-technological solutions to dealing with These are problems for the late 21st century that we'd better start thinking about now. And today, the conversation is is shifting from get more, get more, get more, new supply, find the next source of water, tap the next groundwater well, bring the next river over to where you want it. That's been the 20th century, what I call the hard path for water. And I think we're in a transition now to what I call the soft path for water, which is a much more integrated, innovative supply, rethink demand and efficiency and productivity, smart economics, rethink the institutions that we've put in place to manage water and the water rights systems. And from there, 
we have to move to a comprehensive sustainability philosophy where what we're doing, we can do forever. We are inevitably going to move to a sustainable water system. The question is, what path are we going to take? How much misery are we going to experience along that path from where we are today to where we want to be? And can we find a path that minimizes that misery? And are you optimistic about that? Because that part seems like that's the cultural part. That's the conversation that has to happen. That's the conversation that has to happen. And I'm a qualified optimist. I'm absolutely an optimist, but in the sense that I do believe we're moving to a sustainable planet. I do believe we will solve our water problems and will eventually provide safe water and sanitation and adequate water services to everyone on the planet. I'm a qualified optimist in the sense that I also understand that there's already far too much unnecessary human misery associated with our bad use of water and our bad impacts on ecosystems and the environment, and that it's going to be a while before we get to that positive future, and that among the paths to that positive future are some that are are bad, are dangerous, are violent, are full of unnecessary death and illness. So I'm an optimist, but not for everybody and not in the near term, I guess is the, is the best way to put it. Well, I'm thirsty. Yeah, no doubt, but not for water. <laughs> you know, if we were to draw a big line down the middle of the interviewees in the conversation, we've got some that are like these really abstract, connect to everything sort of conversations, and we've got other ones that are like, this is a technical thing, let's get into it, right? So our last conversation, Kim Stanley Robinson, we were talking about the fate of humanity and every possible related component of that. Here, we're talking about water. That really puts us in a category of other interviewees. James Banford talks about security. Recently, Rainy Reitman talks about digital liberties, but we've had the same thing. John Seeger talked about population, really focused, much smaller interviews, much more tangible in the world. What do you guys think of that? I think it's important to have both voices in this project. It always makes it a little harder for us at the end to sort of try and provide those bridges out to the other things. I don't know if that's necessarily required. It's just something that personally I like doing. But uh, I think there's enough here that we can talk about for sure. One big bridge, I think, is the way that he talked about the market. I thought it was really interesting for him to note again and again, really, that the market is critical in some important ways that maybe we can discuss. But even as he was saying that, you know, he acknowledged that there were real limits to economic growth. And I think you very rarely get those two things in the same breath. That's an interesting thing. And I, I was wondering that even as I was going through the interview. And part of it is that, well, water doesn't fit into markets in any sort of normal way. He mentions water is a right. That's an irrational thing. Water is capable of being regulated by the market. Water is physically really difficult to move around, to treat in market ways. So it's sort of market, sort of not market. And I ended up wondering if talking about the market wasn't just being a really savvy communicator. I mean, he knows the context that we're living in, that we're working in. Like, maybe he thinks that markets for water are the best way to solve a lot of problems related to water. But maybe he knows that, like, that is our language. 
Right. And I think, you know, in the world that he must work in, where he has very targeted audiences, where those audiences think in terms of market, it's probably necessary to use that language. So how does that square with the growth limits? Most of the people who've talked about limits to growth talk about markets, not necessarily intrinsically markets, but the way they're implemented as being troublesome. He didn't seem to have that big of a problem with it. Something he did that really jumped out at me, and I'm not sure why, he almost equates an end to the growth mindset in economics with this moment when suddenly the population is going to stop growing and begin shrinking. And I don't know that I was convinced that that inflection point in terms of population is going to cause that inflection point in terms of of the market and in terms of economics. What's your reluctance there? I guess he didn't explain the logic there quite enough for me. I have no problem with believing that it's something you could argue, but I didn't think it was argued. Yeah, it seemed to me like he was just sort of equating, uh, you know, population with environmental impact. And we actually got a little bit of that recently, where um, Robinson referenced uh, Paul Ehrlich's, you know, famous equation of environmental impact, I think, equals technology multiplied by population. Mm-hmm. Something close to that, I hope. <laughs> or Yeah, and technology and demands. Okay, yeah. And in there, maybe there's a place for culture and deciding what technologies are there. But it seemed to me, Micah, that in Glick's view, there wasn't really a place for culture to sort of steer how population would impact the environment or the economy. That was a big thing in this entire conversation is that he felt like an engineer to me, which will be a a notion that will come up in the next conversation we have. He's talking about technical things. He's talking about solutions. He's is very rational. And the policy and culture changes that need to happen, he sort of pushed off and said, and then that conversation needs to happen. Yeah. And when I was conducting the interview, that was something I felt like I kept pushing him on. There are people who are engaged in the world of politics and policy, Mm -hmm. and they give different interviews. To be totally honest, I wish I could talk to them after they retire because I want to know what they really think. (laughs) You know, I felt this way at several points in this project, and it's one of the reasons that we haven't spoken to many politicians. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt that Peter was on that page. Like, he really knows what he has the expertise to talk about in the public space, and he doesn't want to get into personal beliefs very much because he doesn't want to compromise his effectiveness in crafting water policy. There's kind of the old purity versus pragmatism thing here. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's got well-formed beliefs on everything that I asked him about. But if he wants to be a relevant actor, he has to say, that's a conversation that should be had in the public sphere, rather than saying, I really think we ought to deal with markets in this way. <laughs> you know, And I don't blame him for that at all. Well, I think there's something in that in terms of just thinking about the conversation, especially as we wind this series down and taking a step away from Glick in particular, but just thinking about the role of engineers and technocrats in the world and how critical they are for thinking through issues, but that maybe sometimes the framing of the really big questions in front of us happen elsewhere, Uh, happen with fiction writers, happen with activists, happen with all sorts of different people, and each one of them is a part of the conversation. This is The Conversation, and that was Peter Glick, recorded in Oakland, California, on June 18th, 2013.